that was one of people who was really optimistic when the liberal government came in. And I should also note that if you look at 20 odd years of commenting and being active on digital policy, I, I often have felt like I'm an equal opportunity critic. I was very critical of the conservatives on a whole bunch of policies. And frankly, when there were policies that I liked, whether liberal or conservative, and I thought were in the right direction, I was quite supportive of them. On these issues, I feel like I've consistently tried to call it as I see it. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and my guest on this episode is Michael Geist, who joins me to talk about free speech and Bill C-10. Michael is a law professor and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, and he's a member of the Centre for Law, Technology, and Society. He has written extensively around copyright and IP, and I've personally come to know him through his strong advocacy around privacy issues, including criticism of the former Conservative government's overreaching anti-terror legislation. Most recently, as the equal opportunity critic he describes himself to be in that opening clip, he has turned his criticism towards our Liberal government's Bill C-10 through an extensive blog series on a range of different issues, including free speech concerns and an opening in the law that would allow for CRDC regulation of user-generated content. Now, the government has repeatedly, albeit clumsily, said from the outset that it does not intend to regulate that kind of content and that the focus of the bill is to require Netflix, Spotify, and other online undertakings simply to pay into the system of Canadian content creation as traditional broadcasters are required to do. So my view in all of this, frankly, has been that the government needs to correct its misstep in communication and clarify the law to properly exclude user-generated content. Having engaged with the minister's office on this issue, I am confident that this will be put to bed. And to that end, the minister stated just yesterday that we want to make sure that the content that people upload on social media won't be considered as programming under the Act and that it won't be regulated by the CRTC. And that's why we will be bringing forward another amendment that will make this crystal clear. And while I'm confident that this will be resolved through amendments at committee, as the minister suggested, I do hope the conversation with Professor Geist remains instructive in how we both look to update rules around broadcasting, but also with respect to how we look to address online safety going forward. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. You have been raising objections to Bill C-10 for months now. You put out a 20-part series, Broadcasting Blunders. But recently, it's not just you writing about this. Many others are writing about it as well. Why all of a sudden has there been this increased and vocal opposition to C-10? Yeah, you're right. So it's it's true. I have a whole series of concerns that are linked to, but are not directly on point with what we're seeing right now. But it's quite clear that the trigger for all of this was sort of a, a very unexpected decision by the government to remove one of the exclusions that it had for user-generated content. And so the minister, Guilbeau, and the government had insisted, really from the moment this was introduced, that excluding user-generated content, and you can remember the minister talking about, I'm not interested in your pet videos, that was going to be excluded. And while there is still an exclusion in place for regulating the user, their content is now subject to regulation in a way that it wasn't before. And I think the reaction we've seen is stems from a lot of people deeply concerned with what it means to say that all of this content, the millions of videos people post on the TikToks and YouTubes of the world is effectively subject to regulation as a program by the CRTC. And so just to be clear there, there is an exclusion still, 2.1, that excludes user-generated content 
in the sense that there is no direct regulation of users themselves and the content that they produce. But there remains, because of the removal of 4.1, at least at the moment, and they're still going through clause by clause, but at least at the moment, the removal of that exclusion means that user-generated content can be regulated indirectly by virtue of CRDC imposing regulations on online undertakings. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, listen, user-generated content implies that the user created this content. The user will still not be subject to regulation as a broadcaster. So, you know, in fairness, the government is not saying that we expect a million TikTok users to come out to Gatineau and appear before the CRTC in the way that they would expect CTV or Global or the, or the CBC, I suppose, to come out and appear as a broadcaster. But they are saying that all of their content is a program or can be treated as as a program and is subject to regulation in the same way that any other program that appears on those networks, let's say, would be subject to regulation. Now, the government has said very clearly, I've seen my colleague Julia DeBruzen say it, I've seen the minister say it, they've said, we don't want to regulate user-generated content. We have no interest. This is not our intent whatsoever. Our intention is to make sure that online undertakings, the Netflixes, the Spotify's of the world are paying into the system in the way that other cultural creators are paying into to the system. And the reason that 4.1 was removed, that exclusion, was, I'm told, the way it was drafted, it also meant that YouTube was entirely excluded, not in relation to user-generated content alone, but also in relation to professional music. And YouTube, I'm told, is the number one professional music streaming service in Canada. So if Spotify is going to pay into the system, YouTube Music should pay into the system too, ostensibly. That's the rationale. Do you take issue with that explanation? Or is the issue simply fair game if that's your rationale, but then draft a better exclusion? Well, I would take issue with the rationale as well. I think that's a misread of the provision that they included. And actually, you mentioned that 20-part blog series that I wrote. And one of them actually argued that I didn't think that the exclusion for social media was broad enough because it isn't as broad as as I think you've just suggested, or more accurately, perhaps that DeBruzen has suggested somehow, we've just excluded social media altogether. That's just simply not the case. What the law sought to do was to exclude user-generated content, both the users and their content, but say that for large social media companies where they function as a broadcaster, where they have some amount of control over that content, that that would be subject to regulation in the same way that other broadcasters typically would be subject to regulation. And it's actually right in the that 4.1 where it specifically says they won't be regulated where they are only posting essentially user-generated content. I didn't take that to be an exclusion altogether of YouTube. YouTube can contains all sorts of content that goes beyond just individual user-generated content. But I would I would even say, and we can get into discussion if you like about the copyright issues and the payment issues, but I would even go so far as to say that if the trade-off at the end of the day is between saying we are going to regulate the speech of millions of Canadians or look to this one company and say, well, we know you're already licensing and paying for all this music, but we also want some extra double dipping and more payment. This is an easy policy choice to make. You stand with Canadians and it is incredibly discouraging. And it's not just Guibault and DeBruzen, it's been the NDP as well. Somehow think that their role, their priority ought to be to take on a few large tech companies as opposed to standing up for the free expression of millions of Canadians. Why can't we draft the law in such a way that both ensures online undertakings pay into the system and we may disagree about the validity of such a policy? 
policy, but that there is a rationale. I think you've even said the debate is not whether the cultural sector should be supported or whether foreign internet streaming services should contribute to the Canadian economy. In both cases, the cultural sector should be supported and these foreign internet streaming services should contribute. Rather, the issue is whether C10 is the best way to accomplish those policy goals. So we could have a legitimate policy debate as to what the best way of making sure that they pay into the system is. But surely there's a way of drafting this law that ensures they pay into the system and that doesn't affect user-generated content and free speech. You and I spoke last about C11, and that's a privacy bill. We are in general agreement. It's a good bill. I haven't seen a blog post really taking that bill to task in the same way you've got your series on C10. And I said to you at the time, I haven't really got my head into C10 because I've been focused on C11. And then I started getting correspondence, really worried about free speech. And yes, we can regulate speech. We regulate speech by way of hate speech. We regulate speech by way of false advertising. We regulate speech in different ways, but we regulate them in very prescriptive ways through law. If we're going to have the conversation about regulating content, which thankfully this is not, I don't think this really truly is, although it has been an open door, it should be a clear debate in parliament as to how we're going to go do it. It shouldn't be kicked over to a regulator with broad scope. Absolutely not. You know, I, I mean, I, you've raised a lot of things that are worth commenting on. I mean, I think I, I'd start by noting that one, this is not about whether or not the large companies get regulated. I think there is consensus that there is an appropriate role for regulation. I think there's room for debate as to the approach the C10 is taking and whether or not there is a true emergency around some of these issues, But and we can get into that if you like. But nevertheless, it's not about whether there's regulation or not. And it's also not about whether or not speech does get regulated in some cases, right? I mean, if you're dealing with child pornography, if you're dealing with hate, you're dealing with other that kind of illegal speech, I don't hear a whole lot of opposition to saying that if that speech is illegal, it is appropriate to have mechanisms to deal with it. I think there still needs to be due process and other sorts of things associated with it, but this isn't about a, a no-regulate approach. It's also not about whether or not there ought to be appropriate compensation from a copyright perspective for things like music. There should be, and there is. What this is fundamentally about is inserting a huge amount of content into the broadcast sphere and handing it over to a broadcast regulator who's got very broad policy objectives that, depending on how they decide it, given moment to interpret it could have significant impacts on the, the freedom of expression, on the way that this is made available to the public, the way in which people can reach an audience or find ways to express themselves. And let's make no mistake, when we're talking about these kinds of videos that people are posting for for an entire generation this is how they express themselves this is their form of communication in the same way that a blog post might have been for mine or or letters or faxes i suppose for for a prior generation and we'd never dream of saying you know CRTC we want you to now regulate the content of letters or blog posts because somehow this is akin to broadcasting it's all the same it's not but that's what we're doing here and i think that's a, it's a big mistake it represents i think a significant risk. I should note that the government, and this is true, I think, throughout C-10 and in its draft policy directive that it finally put out after some pressure from the committee, has provided very little guidance to the CRTC about almost any of this stuff. It feels as if the heritage minister wants to sort of say, hey, I took on these big, bad wed giants and leave it to some unelected bureaucrats in Gatineau to figure it all out. Oh, and by the way, he thinks that they're going to get all of that done within a matter of months. It's not only completely unrealistic for any Anyone who's ever paid any attention to how the CRTC functions. But I don't think it's the way in a democratic society we go about dealing with something that as important as freedom of expression. Just on that point, we're also talking about an agency that doesn't have the best track record on the issues 
to which it really is seized with to begin with, like affordability of wireless services as just one example. I was in a conversation recently and the individual said to me, well, they regulate whether it's Canadian content, not the standards of content. I said, well, actually there are television broadcasting standards in the, the licensing rules and that is controlled by the CRTC. So that's not entirely true. It may well be that they don't go down this road, but shouldn't we make sure we draft a better exclusion here? So I guess the question is, in the end, to resolve this entire blow up, isn't the answer simply reinserting section 4.1 or a similar exclusion and just carving out to ensure that YouTube music and professional music streaming via YouTube is then captured by the act to ensure that contributions can be made, but ensuring that the exclusion is otherwise stringent enough to exclude all user-generated content? Isn't, isn't that the answer? And we can then get back to debating the other merits and demerits of C10? And there are plenty of those uh, in terms of... <laughs> I would say, well, listen, I, I want to make two points. One, I find it, th these claims that somehow the CRTC doesn't regulate content is just incredibly disingenuous. They play a significant role in regulating content. They've got any number of policy objectives that they are required to meet that speak very much to content. They are engaged in making choices about the kind of content people can see and access, how much of it has to be Canadian. They got into issues, for example, on simultaneous substitution and whether or not the commercials were part of the content subject to regulation there. They touch on content and what we see, when we see it, how we can see it all the time. To suggest that somehow this falls outside the CRTC's mandate is just frankly inaccurate. As for whether or not this can be solved by a better exception. I suppose, I mean, that's that's one possibility. I mean, I, I guess my view is the starting point, especially for, frankly, this government that has, you know, emphasized its progressive approach, the charter of rights. I mean, all those kinds of things surely has got to be the freedom of expression. You start with that as the priority. The priority is not whether or not we can squeeze out a few extra dollars from YouTube. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing for the music industry. Let's recognize, though, that copyright already addresses payment for use. We're not talking at this instance about payment for use. We're saying that somehow the fact that you are using it should also mean that you have to make additional payments to help support a system. It's not enough that you're paying the licenses for all of this and that there are all these other potentially ancillary benefits. We want you to pay some additional amount of money. Honestly, I think that there are arguments either way on that. Frankly, I don't know that YouTube, where there may be musical content up they're posted by individual users is the same as a radio station programming music and then paying not just license fees, but then paying into a system or even a Spotify where there is a, a greater level of control and, and programming activity in terms of what's available on that space when compared to YouTube. Part of, I think, the problem with this bill more broadly has been the decision by the government to say that this is all just the same. We've got traditional conventional broadcasting. We've got all these, these online activities, and we can simply treat it all the same as one system. And I think we've seen now in a number of instances that once you get into the granularity of some of these provisions, that approach falls apart. This is a good example of one instance where it does fall apart. They are just not the same, no matter how many times you try to say that they are. And then you ultimately start having to make these tough choices. And I think the government has quite clearly made the wrong one in deciding to pull this back. But it's not just on this one. We saw the same thing with respect to Canadian ownership in the broadcasting system. So you get this issue where the government removed as one of the objectives, Canadian ownership of the broadcasting system. Why? Because it's pretty tough to argue on the one hand 
that Netflix and Disney are part of the Canadian system and at the same time argue that the system needs to be owned by Canadians. You can't have it both ways. And they've tried to do that. They've tried to reinsert it in a way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And all of this, I think, stems from what is the foundational failing of this legislation. And that is the suggestion that it's all a single system. And so we'll regulate so-called like for like when they are not like for like is, I think, the problem. And again, I emphasize this is not to suggest that we should be unable to address the role that these companies are playing and regulate them as appropriate. I would take the position that we should not be regulating them in the same way we regulate conventional broadcasters because they are not the same as conventional broadcasters and taking those legal approaches inevitably raises these kinds of issues where it's just, it's the square peg in a round hole. I want to get back to free speech issues in a bit because there is also an online harms online safety bill that is to come. And the ministers certainly got up in the house and mentioned that on a number of occasions. I do think the free speech issues in this particular bill could be solved fairly easily with a well-crafted exclusion similar to 4.1, but maybe allowing for professional music streaming for YouTube to be captured. But it, to the objections you have to C10 more broadly and, and the ones you just raised in your recent answer there, I have a constituent who is the founder and owner of Indie 88 and his greatest challenge is competing with Spotify. And he would argue that you should ensure that the very strict regulations that he is subject to should be relaxed as opposed to try to really tighten the vice around Spotify. But at a minimum, he would say, if you're unwilling to do that, then yes, make sure Spotify pays into the system. What would be the, the better path forward for ensuring that there is, if not a level playing field, and I know you've written to say there are all sorts of factors that benefit the traditional broadcasters and there are certain factors that benefit online undertakings. What would be some additional measures that we should put on the table? Is my constituent right to say we should actually just be relaxing the CRTC rules more broadly for traditional broadcasters if they're going to better compete with Spotify and Netflix and so on? Well, I, I guess part of it depends on what what are what are the policy priorities that we are trying to achieve here. You know, if the goal is to you know ensure a, sort of a competitive level playing field, ensure that we think that there are fair contributions from people who participate in that, then I think there are a number of ways of going about doing that. You know, my own view is that the regulatory priorities we should have for these large tech companies involve data, the collection of that data, how that data is used. To me, that is where the playing field may be most unlevel in terms of the amount of data these companies are collecting and the inadequacy of Canada's privacy legislation right now. C11, as you mentioned, was supposed to address this, but puzzling to me. The government has seemingly abandoned that legislation. It's barely been addressed or raised ever since it was introduced. That would be one starting point where we can start leveling the playing field. Taxation is unquestionably another. I've seen few people suggest that these large companies should not be paying their fair share of taxes, whether that's sales taxes or more importantly, taxes on, on revenues. And we're seeing the government move there in a, in a way that I think raises its own set of concerns with retaliation. But from the US, given that they're sort of saying we're going to do it even if there isn't a consensus. But if anything, there is a consensus right now, I think, amongst many countries that there needs to be a solution to this. And I think that's the best way you get money back into the system. You make sure they're paying tax. And then you ensure that you've got a competition bureau that is sufficiently aggressive and effective in terms of misuse in the marketplace. But on that, what do you say then, though? So taxes are one thing. You know, Indy 88 pays taxes too. But Indy 88 also, as other broadcasters are required to do, they pay into this system to create Canadian content 
content and they are required to play Canadian content. Obviously, it's, it's impossible to make Spotify play Canadian content in a useful way. Unless you really, you could require some sort of playlist that pops up that says Canadian content. People can click it. They can't. Flix already has a category of Canadian content if people are interested in it. So I don't know that that discoverability is really useful for on-demand, but paying into the system seems like the crux of it for me, but as, a, as more of a layperson to this, I haven't thought through these issues with the same seriousness you have, but isn't that the really, in some ways, the crux of it? If discoverability is not useful for online, on-demand, plays-go systems, isn't just paying into the system and some requirements? I, I understand voluntarily Netflix is doing that. I don't know that Spotify is. So for Indie 88 and, and other broadcasters, isn't that the, the best they can hope for, really, in terms of making the playing field as, as in their view, at least, as level as reasonably possible? First off, I don't think your caucus colleagues are nearly as sanguine about the notion that discoverability doesn't work. In fact, we've seen repeated emphasis on discoverability as being a crucial part of what people would like to see happen. And in fact, government has also amended one of its rules to include apps within the scope of this bill. They have not released the specific exception. It was described as we need to regulate apps as well. And the specific reason given by DeBrusen and before that by uh, Marcy Ian, when she inadvertently leaked the fact you plan was to put this motion forward, uh, was discoverability. And so this notion that we can't mandate discoverability is not at all what we're seeing the government say right now. It's quite the opposite. What would that practically look like? I, I'm on Spotify. I'm on Netflix. What would that practically look like? That things are recommended to me because they're Canadian. So it forces the algorithm to include not only my interest, but some Canadiana in its decision making. That is pretty clearly what they have in mind. Yes, they have an expectation, I, I believe, that the CRTC will get into the algorithms. And algorithmic data is one of the requirements under C10 that can be mandated for disclosure to the CRTC. They will require that your fee, whether it's on TikTok or Netflix or on YouTube, has an appropriate amount of Canadian content on it. Now, how you determine that, especially in a user-generated content world, it's challenging to be sure. But that, again, is what happens when you take one regulatory system and think, well, we can simply bring it over to the other. I think it's, uh, I think they're mistaken. And I think one of the risks that it runs is that we will get services, if this is the direction that we move in, we will get services that simply say the Canadian market is a market we're just not going to operate in. Now, a big player that's already generating good revenues here is probably going to say, well, we will just find some mechanism to try to address these rules. But for many others, they'll take a look at what will seem to be not just unworkable in some instances rules, but rules that really counter what the companies themselves know their customers want. I mean, my view is surely the, the core question ought to be, do you have Canadian content there? Have you made it easy to find? Do you promote it when people want, want access to it? But this idea that it's up to regulators to decide what gets promoted, which is precisely what many groups have in mind, from my perspective, just misunderstands the medium in terms of how things function there. Now, as for just to quickly answer this question, isn't the best way to pay? You know, part, part of the challenges here, we're, we are talking broadly about multiple different kinds of content and the answers for on the music side may be different from the film and television production side. You know, film and TV, for example, has Canadian content rules that, that, that simply aren't fit for purpose in the sense that there are a great many productions that people would think would be Canadian that are not treated as Canadian content. And we've got many others that tick the right boxes or are subject to a co-production treaty. So get treated as Canadian when they've got precious little to do with Canada at all. So uh, 
deeper analysis and perhaps changes to our Canadian content rules so that we actually get at that policy objective of so-called telling Canadian stories is something that's in order. And we've seen very little on that. Now, is it going to make a difference for a Spotify if they have to pay some additional revenues into the system? Frankly, I mean, these companies are doing well. I don't think it will. At the end of the day, it's just users who are going to pay higher usage fees as as part of it. So our prices go up. I guess at this stage, I'm unconvinced that this is the the correct approach. And and if the solution, so-called, is to say that, well, you know what, we're going to relax at least some of those, some of the other obligations because of it, I think that's a discussion worth having. I would note that you know, for many, there are advantages to be in the licensed world. And this is where I've written extensively about this notion that it's not a level playing field right now, in part because if you're a broadcaster, you get all kinds of advantages that someone on the internet, an internet streaming service doesn't have. And so I think that some of those payments can be viewed as a bit of a regulatory quid pro quo. You get these advantages, you make those payments. If your services that don't have those advantages it's not as compelling an argument to me that you ought to be paying. That's not to say that you ought not to be paying for the content you use, but, and this gets people confused sometimes, that is a copyright issue that is already, where there already be payments and there's discussion, the minister himself put out consultation to, again, look at this issue in the coming months. I feel like we just went down a completely separate C10 rabbit hole, but to, to turn the conversation back to free speech, while I think that there's a pretty easy solution if we are intent on protecting user-generated content in the course of C10, drafting an exclusion seems fairly straightforward to me in many respects, but there is a bill set to come that the minister's spoken about. And this is a file I've worked on more directly insofar as I, as part of the International Grand Committee, have been engaged in sessions where online harms has been a big part of the conversation. Our UK allies have introduced legislation recently around online safety, creating effectively a duty of care on large platforms. In the Canadian context, from what I can glean from conversations with the minister's team and from public statements, they're looking specifically at illegal content, terrorism, child exploitation, non-consensual sharing of images, hate speech and violence. And where that content is posted that is already illegal, so we're not talking about regulating speech in a different kind of way, where illegal speech is posted online, large platforms will then be obligated to take that content down. There will be an independent public e-tribunal of some sort. We'll see what the mechanics and details are around that. But this isn't just about letting the platforms make decisions because we know from the German experience that the platforms will necessarily take down a wider array of content. And so that does have free speech implications. So ensuring that there is that public accountability around content moderation. And then I would expect transparency requirements around content moderation practices, how platforms are already policing their existing community standards and and community rules. And lastly, what I would like to see, and I don't know if this will be in the bill, is greater transparency around algorithmic impact assessments. Because I had Twitter, Google, and Facebook at the IGC when we hosted it in Ottawa in June of 2019. And I said, have you conducted algorithmic impact assessments on YouTube's recommendation function and Facebook's newsfeed? And they said, yes, yes, yes. I said, okay, well, can you produce it to us? And they said, no, no, no. And it does occur to me, if we are going to get into the business of finding solutions to disinformation and harmful content online over and above illegal content, the real concern here is how their algorithms are promoting content, if at all. And if they are promoting certain content, is there anything to be done about it? Well, transparency is the first first answer in, in many respects. That's a long way of saying, 
if the bill is focused on illegal content only in the five categories I've mentioned and has this public-facing e-tribunal system to resolve content moderation decisions and ensure greater transparency there, do you have concerns around free speech? And if so, walk me through those concerns. Candidly, in some ways, this forthcoming bill scares me more than the current bill that we're debating right now. Uh, C10. Great, great, great. Because I haven't got enough email <laughs> correspondence around C10, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're getting correspondence on it I, for a few reasons. One, and as you say, we don't have a bill yet. So in some ways, how can you fairly say you're concerned about a bill that you haven't seen? Um, right. And part of it stems from the fact that the responsible minister, Gubo, has been talking quite a lot about it. And candidly, I watched an interview with him a couple of days ago on CBC trying to defend C10 that in which, with all due respect, the minister, I found him completely incomprehensible and simply unable to defend his own bill. Further, it's a minister who seems to relish prioritizing fighting with internet companies over some of the other kind of fundamental freedoms that we're talking about. And I, I think he's lost the plot in that regard. And I think he's offside where a lot of Canadians are. I think a lot of Canadians would be of the view, yes, we'd like to regulate, but not at any cost and certainly not at, at the costs of, uh, of our fundamental rights. In some ways, I, I feel like I've been thinking the last few days that I feel echoes of the fight over Bill C-51 under the Conservatives years ago, where the Conservatives were just adamant that security trumped all. And so you had to be, even, even if this meant giving up some of your privacy rights, that was just part of the bargain. And I think what we saw from a lot of Canadians was, yes, they wanted security, but again, not at any price and that there were other kind of fundamental rights that were important. I kind of feel like I'm seeing the same kind of movie play out here right now with respect to these issues. Now, on this specific piece of legislation, my concern stems from at least a couple of things. One, there's been real inconsistency from the minister when he's talked about this bill for for months now. What it includes has varied from even harmful or hurtful content at times to the more narrow scope on illegal content. And, uh, you know, there, there have been reports more recently that it has shifted more towards illegal content, which is, is certainly a source of comfort. And I'm glad to see that that's where the government may be moving. I think, frankly, anything else would have quite clearly been subject to constitutional challenges anyway. But nevertheless, then it becomes what kind of structure do you have around that? What a sort of sort of due process do you have around that? And at least from some of the reports, the prioritization of a speedy takedown over an accurate takedown, you know, the minister has said a number of times that, you know, it's going to be 24 hour takedowns because that's what it says in my mandate letter. With all due respect, you know, if you've listened to enough experts and enough people tell you, listen, 24 hours, the priority ought to be not to get it down fast, but to get down the right stuff and not to have the overbroad stuff. And if the response every time is, well, sorry, this is what Justin Trudeau told me to do in my mandate letter, then what is the point of consulting and even talking to experts and looking to the experience elsewhere if all of this got decided in a single letter from the prime minister's office? I mean, it just strikes me as a, as a pretty bizarre way, quite frankly, to develop policy and certainly not one that's consistent with the evidence-based approach that the government has long touted. So there's a concern there. The social media regulator is a source of potential concern as well. You know, if, if I look at the confidence that the, this minister seems to have in the CRTC to figure it all out, am I supposed to be confident in this new social media regulator? And plus, there's apparently now a data commissioner that's coming along as well. I mean, are we, there's a lot of new regulators and commissioners being created, and I'm not sure that that's the best way to go about it. And then there's on top of all of that, with a government that for years has talked about net neutrality as being an important value. I mean, 
Jeez, we had the prime minister subtweeting the U.S. president on net neutrality a few years ago. And yet here we have now the heritage minister saying, no, there may be mandated website blocking for certain kinds of content that we can't otherwise get to from a takedown perspective. I mean, stop to think about what that means. That's content outside the country. That's effectively requiring all our internet and wireless providers to install blocking capabilities and having some mechanism, whether it's the social media regulator or otherwise, identifying sites or content that we are going to mandate be blocked. And we know from years of experience that once you move into that kind of blocking world, overblocking is inevitable. And so I worry, yes, what's the free speech concerns? I worry that we are headed to a world of overzealous takedowns because of the push to take down content quickly and overbroad blocking, because that's what happens when you mandate blocking. So I think there is a lot of reason for concern. If I could walk through some of those pieces. So on the inconsistency around the kinds of content, I think, as you say, it's now in a place where the conversation is squarely focused on illegal content. It's not even focused on all illegal content. You could talk about criminal harassment, harassment and the deplatforming of too many people. That's not even part of the list of illegal content. But we are focused on illegal content and the five categories that I've mentioned, from what I can tell. That seems to take a number of the concerns off the table. There was a public policy forum commission created, a lot of smart people on it, including former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, and they'd recommended this duty on platforms to act responsibly. And it sounded very similar to the UK's duty of care. And again, my hesitation there, and in principle, I've spoken to Damian Collins from the UK, who happens to be a conservative, so these issues can cut across party lines. My concern in some respects is, is the one we spoke about before, about kicking a really broad rule related to speech over to a regulator to enforce. And one of the commissioners, Jamil Jaffer, who's a Prophet Columbia, he and I chatted about this, and he was one of the commissioners for the Public Policy Forum. He expressed dissent along those same lines. And it, it does seem to me, if we focus on illegal content, that does, I hope, resolve concerns around the free speech issues around harmful content. What does that mean? What are we giving the regulator in terms of enforcement powers? The rules that have always applied offline continue to apply online. That seems a pretty defensible position. I think you are of the same opinion that that restraint is welcome. Two, on the timeliness of takedown. Timeliness of takedown can matter. The 24 hours seems a little bit artificial in the sense that would you be comfortable with within a reasonable time in the sense that that then captures contextual factors that if it's violent content and it's really serious that it, it needs to be taken down within an immediate time, they will. But if it is more complex and there aren't extant risks to the public, if it stays up, that some more time would be afforded as opposed to this 24 hours. Do you think the word reasonable would just solve that problem? We'll have to wait to see what the specific language, obviously, that gets used in the legislation. I think, I think first, we while we're in the right basket, if we're talking about illegal content, let's recognize it's not always easy to distinguish between what is illegal and what isn't. I mean, that's part of the challenge, right? So, so yes, we're targeting the right kind of speech, the extent to which we need rules to ensure that we can deal with it more effectively. But let's recognize it's not always a slam dunk and easy to, to identify that. So, that's where some of the challenges start coming up. And that's why you need effective oversight and due process associated with this. We also know, and we know this from whether it's in the copyright world or for, from other worlds, that where the default effectively is to take down, the putback rates are very low. And the putback rates are low because it's difficult for someone to defend themselves. Sometimes they're not even aware that their speech has been removed. And so you may not be notified. It's simply, it's simply gone. And it goes in one direction. Yes, it does. So that's why you need to exercise some amount of caution and appropriate due process. And again, this is not to say that there shouldn't be content removed. This is not to say that we need to ensure that the large companies step up. I mean, 
listen, those companies will tell you that for certain kinds of content, terrorism content, for example, they uh, they work very hard to ensure that it never gets on the platform and will remove it expeditiously. And they say that, that their data supports that. I think sort of consistent with what you're saying earlier, one of the things we ought to be focusing on is more transparency. It's part of algorithms, but it's not just even on the algorithmic side. You know, they put out transparency reports. We often still don't know necessarily uh, what's, you know, what, what lies behind all of that. And part of what I think we need to be thinking about from a regulatory perspective is some way similar to what you see for privacy in the United States, which doesn't go nearly as far as people would like to see from a privacy perspective, but at a minimum says, listen, if you say you're going to do certain things, we're going to hold you to your promises about what you're going to do. And for these companies, we need to have far more consistent application of their rules, and we need to hold them to account in applying their rules that way. And there ought to be some kind of penalties or consequences when they fail to do so. And that's at least part of, in my view, how you go about dealing with this. And my, as I say, my fear for some of these things are, unless we get the structure around the takedowns right, I think we know in advance that we are going to be taking down perfectly lawful speech, because if you create incentives for companies to take down, lest they face significant penalties, they will take down. By the sounds of it, though, so you've raised great concern, and I think you really have been the canary in the coal mine of sorts around C10, where a number of others have come to the fore after you've written about it to say, hang on, we have concerns here too. And not just the conservative talking points. I've seen others from the Civil Liberties Association to Emily Laidlaw, and there are others who have raised concerns too. But as it relates to the forthcoming bill, and we don't have the details in front of us, obviously, I wish I was more involved in the drafting of it to know exactly what was in it. But if the parameters, as I've described, are the bulk of what is in it, or are really the crux of the legislation, illegal content, a public body that is going to be able to act as an appeal mechanism for takedown decisions by these platforms, and that the platforms are subject to greater transparency requirements in terms of algorithmic impact assessments, and in terms of their own content moderation practices, in principle, although, you know, devil in details, but in principle, you wouldn't object to that kind of approach. I don't object to ensuring that we've got effective rules to deal with illegal content. But I do, for example, I object to website blocking. Government mandated website blocking. I object to 100% and have deep concerns that if we put this in there, that will, but one, once you've got that equipment built in and those capabilities built in, it becomes, you know, it's a proverbial slippery slope, I know, but it becomes very easy to begin to say, well, we've got the capabilities of blocking this content. This is also harmful, or this is also problematic, or this also meets a policy objective. We ought to be mandating blocking for these other issues too. And I don't really understand how that would fit within the contours of this bill. And so far as if the bill is focused on large platforms, and there would obviously, the EU Digital Services Act, for example, does set a, a threshold that certain rules apply to large platforms that don't apply to other platforms. If you are really focused on the large platforms and you're focused on not only the content that they host passively, and then you're saying, well, this is illegal content, so taking it down, also focused on their algorithmic impacts in so far as what content are they recommending. And the EU Digital Services Act is interesting in my view because it focuses on algorithmic impacts. You do want these companies to be taking down illegal content that is within the five categories I've mentioned, and we want due process, and we want greater algorithmic transparency around the content that they promote and more. But I don't see how the the website blocking would fit neatly within that kind of approach. 
Well, I think it, you know, listen, with the caveat that, as I was saying earlier, I don't think the minister has been all that coherent on many of these issues. I would, I guess, also say that if what you are saying is that you want to stop hate speech content, let's say, or terrorism content, it doesn't only appear on those platforms. I mean, it may appear elsewhere. And so it may be that the the approach is to say, well, we need to have a mechanism to address that kind of content as well. I mean, it's quite clear we've had government take the position that from a regulatory perspective, it doesn't matter where the content resides. And this is true on a number of different fronts. We're going to, if we think it's in our interest to regulate, we'll regulate. You know, I think part of the problem here, and this is relates, this really kind of brings together both C10 as well as, frankly, the absence of operating on C11 and this forthcoming bill is that honestly, with respect, this government just has not done a good, sophisticated job of identifying what the fundamental harms or policy objectives are. I mean, it, it feels as if all it needs to do, it thinks it needs to do, at least for this minister, is to say, hey, they're web giants and we need to do something about web giants. I mean, it's the talking point that comes up again and again and again. And I get that there are concerns with these companies and there is a need to deal with these issues, but we need a much more sophisticated process for thinking about what are the end goal objectives and how can we best achieve them. And I don't think we're achieving that with the with the approach that we've seen to date. If anything, I think we've seen, as I was mentioning, we've seen too many attempts to kind of fit stuff that doesn't fit into the system and then kind of wash our hands of it and say, well, we'll let the CRTC figure it out, or perhaps we'll let the social media regulator figure it out, or maybe we'll let the data commissioner figure it out. It is interesting. I don't know how the data commissioner sits alongside, the privacy commissioner sits alongside various regulators as far as it goes. Now, I do recognize that Elizabeth Denham, Canadian, but now the information commissioner in the UK, when we had her in front of us as part of the IGC, she said very clearly, I'm focused on algorithmic transparency and I'm focused on algorithmic explainability, but I'm not focused on the human rights then impacts. That's for a different regulator. If there's bias in the algorithm that is contrary to human rights, that's for a human rights commissioner. So you do need multiple different regulators or, or agencies that are seized with it, but you want them to have clearly distinct functions. And at the moment, I don't really understand how a data commissioner's example would fit in the framework that we've got. I really should have just had you on to talk about C11 because then you would have only said positive things. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do appreciate your time. I, I have to say, well, a few things. One, I hope C11 does get to committee before the end of June. Otherwise, I, I think you're right to criticize in the sense that uh, what a missed opportunity and that that's an area where across party lines, there's consensus, there's agreement, let's get this done. It's an important step as we live our lives online, our laws to reflect that reality. And as it relates to the online harms, online safety bill forthcoming, my take away from this conversation is if what I think to be true in the way that it is coming together, though again, I may be surprised, I don't know, but if what I think to be true comes about, then you won't really be out there writing 20 blog posts about the bill. And there may be some tweaks to it, but you won't be taking us to task in the same way you have on C10. And now that I've got my head into C10 in a more serious way, I have read through the bulk of your blog posts and you are making a number of different critiques, but on the issue that most people are writing to me about, which is the free speech issue, this one seems, unlike gun control as an example, where there's just an ideological difference. Some people believe based on evidence that we need more gun control. Other people believe differently, and we are not going to agree on the answer. We're going to have a big debate. On this issue, there seems to be just a, a misunderstanding on the government's view that they have by removing this exclusion, there's a hole there that they don't that they don't need to plug. And and clearly Canadians are telling them, no, you need to protect our free speech. If your intention is not to regulate user-generated content, then make it explicit in the law. And if 
the committee does its work to make it explicit in the law, then I think I'll stop getting emails I've, other than your emails. Cause you'll say, I've got this 20 part <laughs> blog series and I still don't agree with the bill, but, but Canadians who care about free speech, myself included, we won't have cause to be concerned about the bill if we're able to land the exclusion. Right. So, I, so I, I do appreciate you raising it. Cause then everyone else has been raising it too. I think that's probably a fair conclusion. I do think that there's, there remain significant problems with the bill, but it's pretty obvious that uh, it's on this specific issue, especially that that's clearly galvanized huge number of people. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that so far we've seen both liberals, but frankly, also the NDP say, no, nothing to see here. We're good with what we've done. Well, I, I appreciate it. I don't think I'm going to get the same number of emails about discoverability, but, but you <laughs> never know. As always, I do appreciate your time and I'll keep stealing your time so long as you're able to give it to me because it's it's always been helpful, particularly on privacy issues, but but now this issue as well. So, so thanks, Michael. Well, good stuff. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. As I said at the outset, the minister has now publicly committed to a new amendment and exclusion for user-generated content, and I do expect that will put the free speech concerns to bed once and for all. Though I also recognize Professor Geist has many other concerns with the attempt to bring some old rules to bear on new business models. I may well need to revisit this online harms and safety conversation with Professor Geist in the future, depending upon how closely the forthcoming legislation ultimately matches my expectations, but I am hopeful that we'll be clear in our respect for free expression and that the rules will more closely track the EU Digital Services Act, for example. Finally, a few notes worth closing with. First, while there would be legitimate concerns with passing the law unamended, there's really no reason for the opposition to hold up the bill now that amendments to fix the issue are being proposed. Second, I'm told that the NDP and Bloc also voted to delete the exclusion and that the Conservatives even proposed an exception to the exclusion that would have raised similar concerns. So really, none of the parties seem to have wrapped their head around the potential ramifications on speech until Geist and others raised concerns, a real testament to our engaged civil society. Third, I mentioned my constituent who founded Indy 88, and I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention his concern that it isn't only about making new platforms pay into the content creation system, but also how those dollars are ultimately allocated, and he reminds me that while TV is being devastated by on-demand, that we shouldn't forget the continued importance of radio. Lastly, if you have any thoughts on this issue or others, do email me at info at and otherwise... Until next time.